Thank you. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. I'm happy to fill in. John's on vacation, and so we'll take a bit of a break from the Esther series, although there is a connection. Uh, last week in Esther 3, you heard that the evil magistrate Haman uh, hatched a plan to kill all the Jewish people. And King Ahasuerus wrongly, sinfully said to him, do whatever you want. Do what seems right to you. Go ahead. Well, we want to refute that this morning. It is um, also what's behind the um, meditation in your bulletin. The quote from Paul Tripp refutes that kind of thinking. The title is, It's Not About You, and we would say that to Haman. So I think it is uh, in our text this morning, and so let me read to you from Philippians 1, 12 through 14. You can follow along in your Bibles or on the screen. Philippians 1, 12 and following. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord of my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Grass withers and the flower fades, and this is the word of our God. It stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you again for your word. Our Hearts are open, our Bibles are open, our minds are open to you and your spirit. And so would you speak, please, in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed how you see things through your own eyes? Pretty obvious statement, I know, but it has uh, far-reaching implications. I am so used to seeing things from my perspective, it's hard to give your view equal time. I can see things from your point of view some, a little, but it takes a lot of effort. So by way of illustration, when we were in Japan, our daughter was in high school and was having a difficult time with the situation. And I said, well, Aaron, I know how you feel. And she was polite. But she said, Dad, there's no way you know how I feel. I'm a teenage girl in a strange missionary kid's school in a foreign country, and sorry, you don't know how I feel. She was right, of course. We try to understand others, but we often can't. So the title is, It's Not About You. And having said that, I realize immediately that in one sense, it's very much about you in that the God of the universe has sent his son to die for you on the cross and to rise again on the third day for your justification. In fact, if you're in Christ, your actual name as an elect person was on his mind when he was on the cross. And that's very much directly and specifically about you. But in another sense this morning that we want to concentrate on, we can take that too far into thinking that life is therefore all about us. It's not. As we learn grace and the awareness of others, 
we do grow in our ability to put ourselves in others' shoes, but I'm convinced that rare is the person that does that well or often. We do make short excursions into others' worlds, but very quickly we default back to home base, which is me. It's natural. I mean, it's, it's like breathing. And we, we never think consciously, now lungs, I want you to breathe in now. And now in, and now lungs, I want you to breathe out. No, we do it without thinking. Kind of a play on words, but we think about ourselves all the time without thinking. Just like breathing, we naturally think our thoughts first about things. We naturally see things through our eyes first. We naturally interpret life through our own experiences first. What we're saying, quiet part out loud, is I got this way because I'm smart. So, of course, I use my experience first. Whose else would I use? Only a crazy person would do otherwise, we reason. And when I do this often enough and long enough, I can slip into thinking that life is all about me. I come first, right? You might say, I kind of have to because I've noticed nobody else puts me first. Sometimes, though, God momentarily turns off our natural self-oriented air supply. And he uses suffering and difficulty to show us something important that we wouldn't otherwise come up with on our own. And we see that in this text. Wouldn't it be great if we could more quickly recognize what God was doing through the difficult times in our lives? Wouldn't it be great to more quickly get past the why is this happening stage, the why me stage. And I think today's text will do that for us. To be honest with you, and this might be too much confession, I love me. I think I'm a great guy. I spend a lot of time, effort, energy, money, worry, and sympathy on me. And I really react when anything threatens me or any of my life support systems. My skin is about that, that thick. I have very thin skin and it takes very little to wound or offend me. I am so easily sent into a tailspin with even the tiniest suggestion that I might be wrong. We all have lots of life support systems, and they aren't just physical ones of food, shelter, or physical safety. Uh, most probably are emotional ones, and we're blind to many of them. But they rise up when anything negative or threatening is said or even suggested. Suffering in the Christian life threatens that ring of safety and well-being that we all strive to maintain. We spend cocoons of self-protection and much of the time without even thinking about it. So the main thought today is life isn't about you. It's just not about you. 
not about me. Other people don't exist to meet your needs or my needs. It's not about you, it's not about me. As the text tells us, it's about the gospel. And it's about the kingdom of God advancing. It's about other people getting into that kingdom. And that's what the first phrase in our text is saying where he says, I want you to know. You see that? We have to be told these things because of that extreme self-focus that we all have. When he says, I want you to know, he's saying, you know, that means you probably or might not don't know this yet. <laughs> Looking at the text, Paul says in verse 12 that what is happening to him, what has happened to him, his being imprisoned has actually been for the advance of the kingdom. And this implies Paul is thinking that they would think it was for something else when suffering comes. For some other reason, something other than the church growing. So this means that his arrest, this experience that he's going through, the running afoul of the law, um, might first be thought of as, oh, that's very unfortunate. You might think, well, he should have laid low. He should have kept quiet. He should have been smarter, not gotten himself arrested. No, it has happened. It is happening, and it happened, and he is suffering in prison, and Paul wants us to know the reason. So as we're thinking about this, we should consider for a moment the possible causes, biblical causes of suffering. There's several. Uh, one is corrective, to put us on the right path when we've gone astray. Solomon uh, talks about this kind when he says in Proverbs 3, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as the father disciplines the son he delights in. So corrective is a possibility. Other suffering is to make us aware of the needs and feelings of other people so we can have sympathy, empathy with them to know what they're going through in the body of Christ. Uh, still other kinds of suffering are instructive. They seek to mold us into the image of Jesus because we learn through the things that we suffer through. If you, I have been before for a good long stretch. If you've ever been unemployed, you learn more what it means to lean on Jesus for money, for income. You sort of knew it before, but now you really know that. Do we really learn anything in easy times? Good question. You can think about that later. First Peter chapter 3 talks about a kind of suffering that refines our faith. He says it's fire-tested uses that kind of language. Uh, he says, gold is melted in order to be purified. You know what he's talking about. The scum or the dross comes up and it is skimmed off when heat is applied so that impurity can be removed. So suffering in this sense is the heat that God uses to reveal and remove spiritual impurities. You go through trouble and you find out I have a severe lack of faith. 
that I didn't know I had. There's something to skim off through repentance where you realize how selfish you are in suffering. But Paul's suffering in our text this morning was, I don't think, maybe it's a mix, but I don't think it was primarily any of those other ones. It was rather a suffering permitted by God so that the gospel might be spread to others. Now, most Christians don't experience this kind of suffering directly, I don't think. It's probably maybe more often on the mission field, but it could be anywhere. We experience some of it in Japan, but nowhere near like this with Paul. In Japan, it was more emotional suffering than it was physical. Uh, being away from family and home, especially during holidays, uh, being misunderstood, constantly stared at. We experienced discrimination in the realty office, trying to rent a home, um, some humiliation at the grocery store uh, when we couldn't use the money properly and people are waiting and staring and wondering what's wrong. And we went through those things as missionaries spreading the gospel and we sometimes had the thought, I don't need this. For missionaries in primitive cultures, the suffering gets more physical with dangers from disease or unsafe travel or even physical attacks. Some of our missionaries who we support in this church serve in countries prone to violence, and they could tell us a lot. You've probably heard of this, but in the 1950s, five Wheaton College graduates lost their lives in an attempt to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. In the short term, it seemed like a disaster. Five people killed. But among the long-term benefits was the very high number of Wheaton graduates who year after year for the next two decades almost offered themselves to missionary service around the world. So because of the Aka Five, as they were called, many were encouraged. This is right there in the third verse of our many, many were encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. So, some forms of suffering in the Christian life are directly for the advance of the gospel. We need to be aware of it and also be ready to go through it if God should allow that. I think that could be our first point of application. Are you ready? Do you give God permission, as it were, to do this in your life? Of course, he doesn't need your permission, but it can be an act of faith to say to the Lord, yes, have your way with me in my life. Well, that's the first point. There's three points to this message. The first one is that some forms of suffering in the Christian life are for the spread of the gospel. That's the first point. The second point is the people who hear that benefit. That's quite obvious. And the third point, even the ones who do the speaking, the sharing of the gospel also benefit. So the second point, the benefit of this suffering is for the people who hear the words of, of the gospel, obviously. Those who hear the gospel benefit from it. The people who hear the life-giving gospel benefit eternally. We would hear people in Japan say, you've come all this way 
just to tell me about Jesus? You'd give up all that comfort and convenience and freedom in America to tell me about Christ. Well, Paul was imprisoned in a Roman jail. You know this, those guards were the elite, the very best of the best. And when Paul was not in a cell, a guard was literally chained to him. Saying about chains earlier. Can you imagine being one of those guards? Do you think Paul kept quiet? Paul's evangelistic fervor and message, it says, spread throughout the whole imperial palace guard. Can you imagine the dinner table, the guard's house that night? Guard telling his family, this guy talked to me today like I have never been talked to before. You will not believe what he said to me about somebody named Christ in some kingdom. I'll never forget it. Step back for a moment and think. Let's say you're a missionary to Italy and you were appointed as evangelism coordinator in Rome, Italy. And your particular assignment was the palace guard. That's a very narrowly defined people group, to say the least. How would you go about getting the gospel to them? You're an evangelism coordinator. You studied. You know how to do this. So what would you do? A poster campaign? You'd have to get permission to put up some posters in the prison. I don't know if you'd get that. Specially designed palace guard tract, like the four spiritual laws, but for palace guards. Maybe invite them to a crusade with the testimony of a former palace guard, if you could even find one. Point is, God's methods and logic are very different from ours. Roman guards on assignment in Philippi don't go to Billy Graham crusades. So God takes a one-man crusade to them by having him arrested and plopped right in their midst 24-7. Now I want you to know, he says, are you willing to be God's one man or one woman crusade in your neighborhood or even to one neighbor? No, not a preaching public crusade. But are you willing to be sent in this sense? How about your workplace, your school, your family? You are God's plan A and there's no plan B. Well, moving on, verse 13 goes on to say, they'll notice. It says, it has become known, it has become clear that I'm in chains for Christ. They saw, they could tell, I'm suffering for Christ's kingdom's sake. They'll notice. People will notice. They might not say anything for a long time, but since God is the author of this suffering, he won't waste it could take a long time and maybe you'll never know, but you don't get to control how long or how because it's not about you. But God will use it. The benefit 
of such suffering is for those who hear the wonderful news of salvation. Isn't that suffering worth it? One of the joys we had of going to Columbia International University where I went for seminary was, it's a famous um, missions school. And one of the benefits was, um, joys was to meet so many people who wanted to see people in other countries hear the gospel and be saved. And so many of the students that we were there with uh, went on to be missionaries and some in very dangerous places. By the way, who did you hear the gospel from? I heard it from my wife. Or who or what combination of people uh, led you to Christ? Would you say there was benefit for you in hearing the gospel? There was for me. And many of those students that we studied with in CIU, at CIU had given up law practices, medical practices. Uh, one was an insurance salesman. One was a pilot. My best friend was a vegetable salesman to casinos in Reno, Nevada. And God called him into the ministry. Another was a car mechanic. So for application on this second point, even though you might not be headed to the mission field, way out in your mind... The difference between, on the one hand, whatever risk or embarrassment it might be for you to share the gospel, and on the other hand, the benefit that would come to the person who hears it, even if they, and maybe especially if their first response is not to say thank you, their response might be, leave me alone. But what benefit would come to them if they heard and acted on that? Okay, well, we've been talking about sharing the gospel with non-believers. What about sharing the gospel with believers? It's a sort of a sub-point of the second point, that people who hear it benefit from it. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by those who already have heard it? Why share the gospel with people who have already believed it? Isn't the gospel the way you get into the kingdom? And These are already in the kingdom. Yes, that's true, but once in, then what do you teach them? Author Jerry Bridges of The Navigator said he came to see this need for Christians to hear the gospel much later in his Christian life. And you, if you track the titles of his books, you'll see the change that took place in his thinking. As you received him by faith in the gospel, keep walking by faith in the gospel. Not to keep getting saved again and again, no, but to stay saved or to grow. Yes, justification by faith alone. But sanctification by faith too, and glorification by, by faith as well. So Jerry Bridges was confronted with this question. Somebody asked him, before you came to Christ, before you got saved, what was your greatest need? And he said, well, the gospel, obviously. So the follow-up question was, well, all right, now that you're saved, what is your greatest need? Now, this question was asked in a huge um, ministry leader training venue somewhere. And lots of answers were given to the question of, so now what do you need after the gospel? And Bridges was very first, and he said, well, discipleship, of course, you know, Mr. Discipleship's answer. 
Others said Bible study. Uh, some said prayer. Some said scripture memory. Some said Christian fellowship. Others said uh, God-centered worship. No, the answer is still the gospel. It is still the fact that you have been bought with a price and you're not your own and that Jesus has taken the guilt of your sin away completely, that he has credited his righteous life to your account irrevocably, that he who had no sin became sin for you, that you might become the very righteousness of God, that while you were yet in your sin, Christ died for you, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed, and nothing will happen to you that does not first come through God your Father who adopted you. And all of this comes because you're in Christ. Now, if that thrills your heart, as you hear it right now, and I trust that it does, you are a believer feeding on the gospel. Still your greatest need to hear that again and again, being sustained by the gospel of grace even now. Somehow, I don't know, it happened to me, but somehow the gospel gets obscured and eclipsed by those other good, wonderful, necessary things. Well, that's how it should work when a believer shares the gospel with another believer, but it doesn't always because you might suffer for saying that. How? Well, you won't be put in chains, no, but sometimes it's hard to share the gospel with believers, especially if they're not used to it, they will resent it. Why are you telling me that? Don't, don't you think I'm a believer? No, it's precisely because you are a believer. And because you're going through a tough time and you seem to have forgotten some aspects of the gospel, I want to appeal to the gospel in you. You're acting like an orphan, like you don't have a father in heaven who adopted you and who loves you and has promised to care for you. You seem to have forgotten. So repent and believe the gospel as a believer. We should know these things better than anybody. This idea of sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel to believers, uh, it's been, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but it's been interesting and revealing to me as I've been doing an informal study on my own as I read the Bible, thinking about this. This is not scientific, it's anecdotal, of course, but I would say about 80% of the time that the gospel is mentioned in the scriptures it's in the context of being given or preached to the church. If that's so, I believe it is, let's be more accepting when other believers might see unbelief in our lives and shares the gospel with us. It's an act of love. Third point, last point. There's also benefit for those who speak the gospel, not just those who hear it. In verse 14, um, we notice that because of Paul's suffering, brothers in the Lord are encouraged to speak up more. It has a, a stimulating effect, doesn't it? In our missions moments from time to time here, we hear reports of our missionaries, uh, reports about Shepherd's Door, um, 
We send teams to help the Shaws with Sacred Road um, on the Warm Springs Indian Reservation. Several of you went. We hear what they're doing. Um, you see people giving up their vacations to help create career missionaries and get involved. You get involved more and more in some ways. And some of it just rubs off on you and you're not the same anymore. And before you know it, you start to say something for Christ somewhere, but more naturally than before. We should notice in verse 14, it says, and most. Most of the brothers are now more bold, meaning not everyone's going to do this. There will be a few who just never will. But hopefully that's not you. So we try to bring this to a close. Let's consider where we are we look, as we look at these three verses. And so first, I already know the answer for you, but do you believe this is the word of God? That this is God speaking to us? Do you also believe that the Holy Spirit is at work applying this to your life and mine even now? Don't be surprised if you're taking it seriously. Don't be surprised if questions arise in your mind about this. If you don't care, no questions will come up. But if they do from time to time, that's the spirit at work. The problem would be if you've already latched up without knowing it, you've already latched on to the word most in verse 14 and said, phew, boy, that was close. I almost had to share my faith. Glad that word is there for my excuse to not be involved. No. If you're grappling with it, you should be honest and say, God, uh, to be honest, I don't like the word chains. Chains hurt. They rub raw places on you, and you could bleed. Chains keep you from going where you want and doing what you want. I know how chains work and what their purpose is, and I don't like chains, and I don't like suffering, and I don't like pain. I don't like embarrassment. Maybe more too much disclosure, but to be honest, it really upsets me when Walmart is crowded and it's hot and I have to park so far away in that tight, poorly laid, it's the worst parking lot in Cranberry, and break a sweat before I even get in to the air conditioning. And sometimes I have to wait inside for foolish, unprepared, slow people in line that are in my way. And frankly, where do they get off now making me run the register <laughs> and check myself out and bag my own stuff? Where's the discount for that? Well, listen, it's just not about you. You ready for an uncomfortable question? Here it is. Is God more interested in your safety and comfort, or is he more interested in the spread of the gospel? Which is it? I have those Walmart feelings. Where do you think I came up with them as examples? I need to repent and believe the gospel again. That's the remedy. That's the antidote, the gospel, for this poisonous, self-centered 
thinking that we so quickly come up with without thinking. The way we will see that as we close, the way we will see that more clearly is to gaze more deeply at, not ourselves, at Christ and what he did for us in the gospel and to regularly reset our affections on him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would help us to see these things rightly, help us to repent of our self-centeredness and to replace it with faith, and particularly this morning, faith that what this text says is true about the spread of the gospel and our personal suffering. And so please help us to give up more of our self-constructed comfort and reveal it for what it really is. And please, set us free from self so that the words of your own dear Son would be more true of us, that if the Son shall set you free, you shall be free indeed. Make us more and more into people who love to tell the story. We ask in Jesus' name.